I'm Madeline Sinto, and this week on The Daily's Top 10, I'll be counting down the top 10 most sexist commercials of the 50s and 60s. Oh, I didn't know anything about the gold standard, I'm afraid, but I do love little kittens. Don't worry, the flowers and her marriage both end up safe in this Folgers ad. <clears throat> this coffee is criminal. Honey, you killed the petunias. Then you admit it. Your coffee really is murder. Putting a woman behind the wheel of a car? How absurd. Polyglass means more than mileage when your wife has to drive alone. She can't do much, but thanks to Xerox, she doesn't need to. I can't type. I don't take dictation. I won't sharpen pencil. I can't file. My boss calls me indispensable. Miss Jones. Just a minute. Will you make a copy of this? Naturally. I pushed the button on the Xerox 914. Leading with, that's a woman for you, is always a good sign. That's a woman for you. I asked her to get my shirts whiter. What does she call this, whiter? That's just like a man. How can I get his shirts as white as he wants? Unless I bleach the life out of them. Honey, if you're going to work, you better have a secret baking habit to back it up. Every woman needs to be herself at times. Your answer? Baking. Baking good, baking often with gold medal flour. Finally, a soda company offering useful advice to women. Be in his mind. Be a mind sticker with a shape he can't forget. Don't you want to have a good shape? He wants you with a good shape. Shape with tabs. And we have another commercial warning women about the marital dangers of bad coffee. It's a hazard, people. Wonderful anniversary, dear, and thank you for the flowers. You're welcome, darling. But if you could do one thing for me. What? Try to do something about your coffee. I hoped it would be better today. I don't blame these women. How could they resist a cat call from a man with greased hair? When Charlie sees a lovely girl, a girl like yours or mine, he uses a whistle, a wink, and wild root. It gets her every time. Competitive sports apparently included purse shopping in 1957. I wish I was shopping then. And she engaged in competitive sports. Very competitive sports. Did someone say for coat payments, sweetie, you go and buy that Volvo? She might like knowing you're getting a car that in most cases lasts long enough to get people out of new car payments and into new furniture payments or swimming pool payments or fur coat And there you have it, the good old days. What should we count down next? Leave a comment and let us know. Just about an hour ago, I got you fired. What did you do that for? I figured that being my wife would take up all of your time.
So whether we like to admit it or not, sexism is something that is very prevalent in, in our society. And, in, and again, it's much better than it used to be. So let's go on and acknowledge that. But gender roles and gender bias is something that is, is actually very real. And, and so my question to you, if you want to research it uh, during the message, if you get bored or whatever is, so like when the reason we did that song and did it that way, when did like women become you know, pigeonholed into being the ones that wore the dresses and men be the ones that, that wore the pants. I mean, so if you go back to the time of Jesus when he was around, I mean, they all wore robes, right? So historically, I really am posing this as a legitimate question. When, when did that happen uh, and, and why? So if you want to email me that, I'd be, I'd be grateful. I did try to find that and I was wasting way too much time getting wrapped up in that and, instead of the things that really matter. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at two scripture verses that if you have friends that wig out because you have a female as a pastor and actually let's just go on and and please don't be embarrassed to admit this like at a vision team meeting a couple of months ago because I'd had several individual one-on-one conversations with people saying you know I don't know what to say to my friend I keep trying to get them to come to west I tell them we're not threatening we do weird things like you just saw and you know I keep trying to get them to give church a chance because they are so done with religion, but they're not done with God. And frankly, that's the reason we exist. And they say, but then I start talking to them and, and they can't get past the fact that you are a female. And, you know, people come to me and they're, they're embarrassed about that. So I just, I just wanted to ask at the last vision team meeting, and we had over 20 people in the room, and I said, okay, so here's the deal. And I told them that, and I said, how many of you have friends that won't come to West because your pastor is a woman? And uh, at first they were all hesitant and just sort of looked at, e- looked at each other and, and looked at me. And I said, no, I really, I mean, you know, it's not like I'm going to have a gender change, but I am asking it legitimately. It's a real question. How many of you have friends that struggle because I am a female? And uh, over half the room raised their hands. Now, I won't say that that did not make me sad. Because it did. But I also honor and recognize that we all come to our understanding of God and Holy Scripture from very different pathways. And I grew up for, you know, 20 years thinking that women's place in the life of the church was to be silent. It wasn't until I ventured into a United Methodist church and began hearing uh, explanations around the Pauline letters and why they were written and to whom they were written and all that kind of stuff. And, and then recognized that, you know, maybe God had put a call in my life and, and on my heart It took a long time to discern that call and then actually have the courage to tell my parents that I had this call. And uh, you know what? I've I've always wondered, my home church that I I shared my calling with, uh, they weren't really excited about it. In fact, um, they sort of shunned me after that. There's a small, like I'm totally human, I always tell you that, there's a small bit of spiteful me that uh, wants to just say, you know, hey, look, do you believe now that God can use me just because my gender is different than what you think? But that is, that is the sinful part of Andrea because it's not about spite or revenge or anything like that. Even though, you know, we act out of our hurt and out of our pain. So I'm just acknowledging right up front this is an issue that I struggle with. 
I have wounds from it. And so instead of me preaching about it today, because I certainly am going to bring my own bias into it, I asked two different people to share their reflections. The first is a colleague that I've worked with on a committee. I wouldn't, I mean, we're casual friends, a collegial friends. His wife is a doctor in Hickory and one of the lay leaders of our annual conference. So I just asked her to speak about the, the topic of, of sexism. And then Reverend Dr. Terry Moore is the former pastor of Williamson's Chapel. Now he's the pastor at Weddington United Methodist. And he's one of the most successful pastors in our conference. He's a great preacher, a great leader, and frankly, the one who gave me a job in Mooresville that ended up leading me to here. I asked him to speak about it. So, but before that, before I show you those two videos, I want to show you the scripture verses that have, have caused people to, to look at women in the church and in ministry in, in a different way. So let's take a look at these. These are both by Paul. They were written to the churches that he had helped found. The first one's 1 Corinthians 14. And if you have friends that don't agree with women in ministry, this is what they will cite. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame, a shame, for women to speak in the church. The second scripture I, this Paul is writing, I don't let women take over and tell the men what to do. They should study to be quiet and obedient along with everyone else. Adam was made first and then Eve. Woman was deceived first, our pioneer in sin, with Adam right on her heels. On the other hand, her childbearing brought about salvation, reversing Eve. But this salvation only comes to those who continue in the faith, love, and holiness, gathering it all into maturity. You can depend on this. So those are the two scriptures that people will cite. Women need to keep silent in the church. And, and churches that have a theological foundation that women can't be in ministry, lots of times women aren't in leadership roles either. Like our all of West leadership teams, we have three. They're equal between women and men. We believe, and I'll share this again at the very end, that in Galatians, Paul writes you know, that there is no difference, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all one in Christ. Jesus. And so that's the, the, the theological foundation that we come to this issue with. But before we get deeper in the theology, I want you to take a look at this video by Shannon Scherfe. Thanks. So my name is Shannon Scherfe, and I am a family physician. I am married to Josh, who is a clergy in our conference. Um, I finished my pre-med and my undergrad degree at Duke University and then did my medical school and residency at Wake Forest and stayed there in family medicine. And one of the first things that I noticed is that there were definitely a lot more females in primary care residency training programs than in specialty programs. And I saw a lot of female residents and medical students that weren't treated the best when they were doing specialties. So in different types of surgery, orthopedic surgery, general surgery, vascular surgery, neurosurgery, and then in subspecialties in medicine like nephrology, um, GI, cardiology, those were mostly male-dominated at least 20 years ago when I was coming through training. And primary care, OBGYN, p 
pediatrics, family medicine, and internal medicine were more open to females being involved. So you had to be very tough and very competitive and very assertive in order to move up the ladder and to go into a training program in one of the specialties or in one of the surgery type specialties. One of my colleagues from residency had joined Newton Family Physicians right after he finished his training. And every time I talked to him, I was very jealous because he loved his practice and it was a privately owned, physician owned practice and I was very envious. So when their practice, who had, they had five male physicians in that practice and they decided they were ready to hire another provider and they all decided to go ahead and look for a nurse practitioner. And my friend said, well, why wouldn't we hire a physician? And they said, we have never been able to find a female physician that would be willing to work full time and do hospital medicine because at that time they were taking care of all their own patients in the hospital. So we just need to find a female. And my friend Bart said, well, if I know somebody who would be willing to work full time, would you be interested in talking to her? And that's how I ended up joining this group. So we now have five male physicians um, and one female physician, that's me, and then we have four female nurse practitioners. So we're kind of equally divided at this point. Um, when Andrea first asked me to, if I'd be willing to talk about gender issues in medicine, I said, sure, but I haven't really experienced a whole lot of discrimination as a female physician. And then I went home and talked to my husband, and he's like, well, what about all the old patients that'll call you sweetie and honey and say, you're the best looking doctor I've ever had? And I thought, well, yeah, I guess there's, there's that piece of things, and that part doesn't bother me. I chalk that up to generational differences and being in the South. doesn't make it right, but that's sort of what I thought at first. And then he said, well, what about all the times you were mistaken for the nurse? And that's definitely something that happens, um, particularly during training, when you're in the hospital setting and you're going into a patient's room at 4.30 in the morning to pre-round before the team goes on rounds, the patients and family members often assume that you're the nurse when you're a female. My male medical school colleagues did not have that same problem at all. Um, when I started doing a little bit of reading, I realized that was a lot more common. I read about a Twitter survey. There was a room full of doctors and they asked, how many of you have been mistaken for the nurse? And all the females raised their hand and one African-American male raised his hand. And none of the other males raised their hand. So there's definitely some discrimination that occurs in terms of just implicit bias, um, what people automatically assume about you just based on your gender. One really interesting article I read in the Washington Post from 2016 was about four African-American female physicians who were on flights. And all four of them experienced discrimination when the flight attendant asked if there were any physicians on board who could attend to a patient in need. One of them got up and walked up to the front and she said, oh no, no honey, we're looking for real doctors. And that person had to explain, I am a real doctor. And so another one actually was asked for her credentials, whereas the male physician that was walking up with her, nobody asked him for credentials. So to me, to think that that actually could happen in 2016 is, is really sad. And there was definitely more than just gender at, at play there. There was race, of course, as well. Um, one of the quotes that I came across about back to the nursing issue is that amongst physicians, women have historically faced discrimination and trouble even entering the field. In the field of nursing though, men have been met with stereotypes and discrimination from both coworkers and patients. While the number of female doctors and male nurses has steadily increased, there still seems to be a lot of gender discrepancy in these two career paths. 
Back in 1970, only about 6% of physicians were female, and today 30% of full-time physicians are female, and 50% of medical students are female. So things are definitely changing, which is great. But there's still a discrepancy among primary care and specialty. So in emergency medicine, the, the statistics I found were about 40% female. In orthopedic surgery, only 4%. 73% of pediatricians are women, and 85% of OBGYNs are women. And it is believed that women dominate these fields because they're still viewed as female specialties. And many still think that women should be handling just children and women. And the person that wrote this article said they find that assumption about women's preferences to be insulting and only highlight the strong presence of gender roles in culture today. I also remember um, coming through training that most of the higher-ups in academia were men, so department chairs and um, deans of medical schools, and the statistics do back that up. Most of the leadership roles in medicine when you're in the academic sector tend to be men. So 83% of OBGYN residents are women, but only 22% of department chairs are women. The American Medical Association says that female physicians in academic settings make 10 to 20% less than their peers. I don't experience that in primary care in community practice because most private practices you're going to be paid not a salary but you're paid based on a percentage of what you bill or the number of patients you see. So if you don't get, don't work, you don't get paid. If you work a lot, you get paid more. So in my, my practice, it's completely fair and equal. I'm an equal partner in all the decisions that are made and in terms of pay, but I think there's still a discrepancy in academia um, where you see a lot more women having struggles to earn the same and also to kind of move up the ladder if they so choose. So I think Shannon brings up a very important point that bias uh, exists on both sides of, of the gender. So in the very first church that I served very, very, very part-time before I began to pursue ministry as a calling and as a vocation. It, it was a small country church, and there was this new family that moved into the area, and she was an engineer with one of the local businesses, and he was a stay-at-home dad. To watch the ridicule that he received because he chose to stay home with their children and provide care. It, it was just, uh, it was pretty astonishing, actually. Even in the church, people would make fun of him, and they had some names for him. That was really sad. Then also in some of the hospital visits, not recently, but that I made early on when I began ministry, if there was a male nurse after the nurse would leave, there would be comments like, you know, is he just not smart enough to be a doctor? I mean, things like that are real. They're very real. And so if we are followers of Christ, the issues that are social justice issues and gender bias and sexism is an issue, we have to ask ourselves, what is our role? What is our role in addressing this? Now, I'm going to admit, you know, these are not fun sermons to preach, ageism and, and sexism and bullying and those kinds of things because they're difficult topics. But Jesus dealt with difficult topics. And now I want you to hear from Reverend Dr. Terry Moore about the theological issue that we have at hand. 
So Terry, tell me of a time that you've seen a church change their stance on women in ministry. Well, before I answer that question, I want to first say I know I'm responsible for bringing Andrea to the Mooresville community, and I would just share my heartfelt apology <laughs> to all of you. <laughs> but in all seriousness, uh, I do remember one time when I was in seminary, and I was serving a church up in the mountains, and they had appointed a lady to a church not too far from where I was serving. And she was a phenomenal pastor, but the church said, we will not accept her, we will not pay her. But within just a few months of her ministry there, that church would fight to keep her there. So part of what I saw in that situation was a church uh, expecting a stereotype and then realizing that they had a phenomenal pastor and pretty soon they would do anything they had to do to keep her there. What do you think the stereotypes were towards women that churches would have? That's a great question. Um, I'm not really sure why. I think sometimes people did not want women in ministry, and it was typically, I think, sometimes the men, mainly because that was the way they were able to control and keep their own power. I think oftentimes if we look at the church, if we're honest, some of the issues are more about power than they are theology. Uh, and I think that there might have been a thought that just women didn't have the ability for some reason somehow to do the ministry or much less... Uh, maybe have a calling to do ministry. I think those though who encounter effective women pastors realize pretty soon that God lays his hands upon men and women in the call to ministry. And one of the things that was important to me when you came on staff with us at Williamson Chapel when I was there is that I felt like since I'm a male, one of the things we needed was a female associate pastor. And, and that was for a couple of reasons. One, I needed the voice of a female at the table when we were doing worship planning, when we're planning ministry and other things, because there's a perspective that I don't have. And I'm, I think I would be an idiot not to want that voice and perspective around me. I think the other thing, though, is in, in our culture today, I can have lunch with one of the men in my church every Monday, and people would just say, wow, they're close. If I had lunch with the same female two Mondays in a row, it would begin to be a problem for somebody or there would be somebody saying something. And I realized one time when I had one of my members share with me, you're robbing me of a pastor. And I said, tell me about that. And they said, well, you have a total different relationship with my husband than you do me because you're always putting up those boundaries, which I think boundaries are important, uh, but you're putting up the boundaries and therefore I don't have the same access to a pastor that my husband does. And I realized that's not fair. And so one of the things that we wanted to do then was I is to always have a, a female associate. As soon as I moved to Weddington, my first hire there was a female associate as well because now even the women can go to lunch with one of their pastors every Monday without somebody saying something. That's cool. Uh, tell of an example that you have had to lead through where someone had a bias against a woman in ministry. Well, it happened at Williamson Chapel when you were there. It has also happened uh, at Weddington with two of my female associates that I've had there where someone would call the church and want to have a wedding, and they may not be a very active member of the congregation. So uh, oftentimes that was a great opportunity for associates to be able to do the premarital counseling, to be able to uh, conduct a wedding, and to be able to get some of that experience. 
And so I've assigned female associates to do a wedding and then receive a phone call that says, well, we're not really comfortable with women in ministry. Would you consider doing it? And my answer has always been no, I would not do it. Because my point is, what would that say about you and your calling into ministry or the associates that I have today if every time somebody didn't want a female, I would just trump that? And then I would take over and do it as a male. And so my response in your case, for example, was you may not see women in ministry, but we do. And Andrea is one of our pastors. And therefore, if you are going to have your wedding here, Andrea will be doing the wedding because I will not trump that. And I just think it's important for men to step up as well and to be able to help set aside some of the time the bias that we have and that others have against women in ministry. If we believe women are called by God, then we should be able to stand up for that uh, at any time. And one last question. Everyone cites Paul and his theology, you know, when they talk about women can't be pastors. Would you speak to that for just a second? Sure. Actually, I just taught on that Wednesday night at Disciple Bible Study. And Victor Paul Furnish has a book called The Moral Teachings of Paul. And in that, he addresses that we often forget that Paul was writing letters to particular churches, and Paul was writing letters to Timothy. Um, but Paul also believed that Jesus was going to return during his lifetime. And, and if I believed that Jesus was going to return next Wednesday, I probably would not meet with my financial planner on Monday because my priorities would be different. So one thing we have to understand about Paul is if you believe Jesus is returning immediately, a lot of things Paul didn't address at the same time, Paul did say in Galatians that there's neither male nor female, slave or free, Jew nor Greek. And Paul shows that. Uh, you hear the scripture where Paul says, you know, women are not supposed to have authority over a man. And yet in Acts, we see Priscilla and Aquila. And Priscilla is always mentioned first, which I think is interesting that she's the female and is always mentioned first that Priscilla and Aquila pulled Apollos, an eloquent speaker for the faith and preacher, pulled him aside and taught him because his understanding of what God was doing was less. Um, we learn about Chloe. We learn about Phoebe. We learn about Junia. We learn about all these people that were in ministry with Paul and where Paul talks about the church that was in their house. They were part of leading a church right beside of him. And there are times where Paul would say, and do whatever it is that they tell you to do. So the problem with Paul is, if you will let me take anything out of the Bible, out of context, I can make it say anything I want it to say. But you have to step back and go, well, what did Paul do here and here and here? And, and try to get more of a holistic picture of Paul. And when we watch Paul, he had women in ministry around him at all times. And Jesus broke those same kind of cycles when Mary and Martha uh, are hosting Jesus at their home and Martha's very busy, but Mary is there at the feet of Jesus. That wasn't really supposed to happen in biblical times. Jesus, even if he was just considered a rabbi, women did not sit at the feet of rabbis in those days. And yet Jesus said, she's choosing the better portion. She's doing exactly what she should do. Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well. And the very first ones to experience the risen Christ were females, Mary of Magdala. She was the first Christian evangelist of the risen Christ. I can't believe that that's accidental. Actually, I think it's kind of humorous that John tells us 
that he and Peter, both after they saw the empty tomb, just went home. Mary was able to experience the risen Christ and then go run to tell them, I have seen the Lord. So I think Jesus and Paul both demonstrate by their actions their uh, understanding and acceptance of that God can call a woman as much as God can call a man. Well, thank you. And uh, I'll put it on camera. Thank you for believing in me. <laughs> because had you not hired me, you know, so many years ago, I wouldn't be here. So thanks. Thank you. So Terry talks about that we all have the opportunity to stand up and, and speak up. Years ago, a colleague of mine, a, a female clergy person was appointed to a new church. You know, in the Methodist church, we move around and, and she was appointed to a new church. It had a large church staff, had multiple male associate pastors. The previous pastor, senior pastor had been a male. And so she noticed in the first six months that she was there, for the most part, it was smooth sailing. But then she started meeting resistance in just certain pockets of, of ministry and leadership. And so she took a step back and tried to look at what the, the thread was that held all that together, and she realized that this this pocket of resistance that she was meeting was led by one of the male associate pastors. So she met with him and you know said, "Hey, do you have a problem with my leadership? Is there something that I'm doing?" And and he said, "No, everything was all good." But after that meeting, things did not continue to get better. They didn't get better at all. In fact, they continued to get worse. So after about six months, she called a, a member of the staff parish and said, "You know, I just feel that's the governing." HR committee, uh, said, you know, I just feel like something's not right. And he said, well, you know, I've needed to talk to you for a little while, but I just didn't quite know how to approach this with you. Um, we need to talk about one of the associates. Uh, he is telling others that his gifts and his grace are far more to be the senior pastor than yours. And so uh, we have a little bit of an issue with some lack of respect and insubordination, and we need to deal with it. So she said, well, you know, the, the healthy way to address conflict is to all sit around the table and talk about it together. So she called him and, and this member of the staff parish, and they sat around the table. And she said, you know, I, I get this feeling that you do not respect me as a leader. And he hemmed and he hauled and, you know, just sort of walked around it. And she said, okay, so let's just lay all the cards on the table. I think you have a problem with me because I am a female clergy. Is that true? And silence was in the room. She said, okay, so let me explain this one more different kind of way. I feel like God has called me to be the coach. She used a football analogy. I feel like God has called me to be the coach of this team. And my job as the, the head coach, God is the owner. My job as the head coach is to help us score touchdowns because touchdowns are when we lead other people to encounter Jesus Christ. So that's my job. Now, you can be the offensive, offensive coordinator or the defensive coordinator or whatever, and you get to coach those plays, and you get to call those plays, and you get to tell me, you know, what you want them to be. But at the end of the day, I'm the head coach, and I'm going to call it the way that I see best so that we can score a touchdown. Can you do that? Can you respect me as the head coach of this team? Can you respect that God has called me as a woman of, of God to lead this organization and this church forward? Because I think you have a problem with me because I'm a woman. After a few moments of silence, he said, 
well, I'm going to believe that maybe you may think that God has called you to lead and to be a pastor. And I'll honor that you may think that. And the meeting was over. The pastor went to her district superintendent, that's like our boss in the Methodist church, and he talked to both pastors, and the other pastor didn't deny it. And they moved that pastor pretty soon thereafter. That took some guts on the act of the cabinet, the DSs, and the bishop. And, you know, that woman's reputation suffered because of that. People, you know, said ugly things about her because she stood up for herself in a leadership role. But people had courage to stand up when people were treated poorly. That's what Jesus would call us to do in any situation that we've talked about in this series. Bullying, ageism, sexism, racism. There are so many other isms we didn't deal with. As followers of Christ, we're called to stand up, to speak up, and to make a difference. Let us pray. Gracious God, you give us a voice and you do call us to use it. So I just ask that in situations that we face where we can make a difference, that you will reveal that to us in the moment and give us the courage that we need to use our voice for the betterment of this world. You have created a beautiful world, and you are a good, a good God, a good Father, and you love us, and you coach us and you push us so that we can bring heaven here on earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I want to be honest and say uh, thank you. Because I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that for many of you, you have worked through a lot of your own theology about women in leadership and women in the church. And, you know, I didn't walk into a church that already existed. I had the opportunity to found one with leaders. And we've been surrounded by leaders that have never, ever, ever questioned my leadership because I'm a female. So uh, it is a privilege to be in ministry here and a privilege to be able to walk alongside you as we learn to look like Jesus Christ. The next time that we see an issue where someone is being put down, may we stand up, may we speak up, and may we look like Jesus. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.